Greetings one and all, and welcome to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon group of podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Michael Edis. I spent three decades working in the music industry, running my own PR company, and working as a publicist. For you 2 The Police, Depeche Mode, David Bowie, New Order, Peter Gabriel, Genesis, blah, 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 blah. If you want to know more, feel free to visit my website at www.tonymichaelidis.com. Each week, we'll strive to bring you a cornucopia of musical delights, all based around storytelling. There's archive interviews from back in my radio days with the likes of the Ramones, Steve Winwood, the Cramps, U2, etc., etc. We also have some great stories from some industry insiders. Today's Moments That Rock is part two of a four-part podcast series on U2 in the 80s. The first one was episode 15 and featured Neil Storey, the former press officer at Island Records, and the former managing director, Dave Robinson, with some great stories. So just scroll through, check that out, and there'll be two more after this one. Today features Mark Radcliffe. For those people this side of the Atlantic, i.e. in America, Mark Radcliffe is a very well-respected broadcaster for the BBC in the UK with some 40 years' experience, having produced, presented and um, hosted Glastonbury events for television, etc. And uh, Mark was an early adopter of U2, if you like, and uh, this is where I brought them in for him to do an interview with them in 1983. And just to let you know my involvement, uh, I started at Island Records in 1978 as regional promotion manager. Uh, before they'd actually signed U2, I left for uh, eight months to join Charisma and then returned late 1980 was involved with U2 right from day one. My job was to get them on radio and television, everywhere outside of London, basically. And uh, Mark Radcliffe at the time, oddly enough, uh, lived at my house for two years, so we became great friends, uh, both professionally and personally. And um, we used to go and watch many gigs together, and uh, we'll talk about the time, the first time we met U2. So we'll listen to Mark Radcliffe talking about that uh, first gig that we went to in 1980, and then we'll follow that with an interview that I arranged with U2, with Bono and the Edge, in uh, just before the war tour, actually. And you can hear an angry little Irishman, super passionate about his own band, and uh, a little critical of some of the stuff that was going on around. But uh, I think he turned out right. So we decided to go on a rainy Saturday night to Manchester Polytechnic. Do you want to pick it up there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, uh, I remember that venue. I liked that venue. It was just kind of um, uh, just a college disco hall, really. Like a, not a gymnasium exactly, but just a big room, you know, with kind of echoey with a little balcony in it and things. No, not a high-tech venue at all, like an old school hall, really. And uh, I'd always enjoyed going there when I was a student. They had a good disco on a Tuesday night, and I saw a few good bands there, XTC and people I saw in that room. And there was this band called uh, U2, because they were, they obviously were on island, so they must have released something, maybe one or two singles, maybe, Day Without You or, or whatever, maybe. That, that would have been it. And they were being, there was a Manchester connection, because they were such big fans of the Joy Division record that... Uh, those records have been produced by the late Martin Hannett, who was the sort of house producer at Factory Records, wasn't he? He was. Um, so, yeah, so we went down to see you two. It was a rain, it was a foul night, um, you know, unusual for Manchester, which, you know, for those <laughs> who don't know, it's a kind of picturesque fishing hamlet on the, uh, <laughs> you know, in the northwest of England, uh, where the sun always shines. And so I remember it vividly. I remember uh, um, we 
you told me I was driving, which was unusual. To be fair to you, you always drove. But that night I drove and we went in. And we watched you two. My recollection of you two was that even though they, they were young, I mean, and Bono was sort of doing all sorts of elaborate jumps. He had obviously had massive confidence. Larry had his old haircut. Adam had a big sort of boof on but the, uh, my, my strong recollection of that was that the guitar sounded amazing. Um, and uh, The Edge was playing a Gibson Explorer, a natural Gibson Explorer, through, I think, a box AC-30, which he had pointed away from the stage. Um, and he had very few effects, and, 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 but it sounded exactly like U2. Now it takes about 14 people working under the stage to make them sound like U2, but to me... My recollection is they sounded like you two then. It was all there. They were obviously kind of, they came sort of fully formed. And um, they were amazing. We went and had a drink with them and found them to be very chummy. And that was the start of a, you know, um, quite a long friendship, particularly for you, but also me because I was living in the same house where they would drop by occasionally. And uh, lovely fellas. And so we said, oh, that was great, brilliant. And then we went outside in the pouring and um, we walked back to where my car should have been and found that it wasn't. Um, and we stood there in the rain, sort of looking at a space on the road as if it would somehow bring it back. <laughs> and and um, so we thought, right, the car's been nicked. So we went back into the, we went back really down the dumps, um, talking to you two, saying, car's been nicked, as if they cared. They've just <laughs> done a really good gig. I remember I remember the edge being really, oh, really sorry about that. I mean, what, why were we lumbering you two with the fact that my car had been stolen? Um, and uh, anyway, I did eventually get the car back. I remember being very insulted because on the back seat of the car was what I thought was a very cool jacket and they hadn't bothered to nick it. So I thought, you know, well, that, that was rude. So yeah, that was the first time I saw you two. And I and then we saw him a few times, didn't we? I remember, um, we, I remember standing on the side of the stage at the uh, in Liverpool. Uh, now, what would the theatre have been? Royal Court. The, uh, the, but the, uh, the Royal Court and the Alarm were the support. And we were stood on the side of the stage with Bono because he was a massive fan of, uh, of the Alarm, who were a very powerful live act in those days. And so, um, uh, you know, I do remember that. And uh, I also remember one night that... Um, uh, American uh, listeners to this would probably be aware of a legendary London rock and roll club called the Marquee. Um, do you remember this? Uh, the, the Marquee, a little club, is not there anymore. And uh, we were in Manchester, which was about 180 miles away. I know people in America go 180 miles to pick up a sandwich, but <laughs> it, it was uh, quite a long way. And we, we, um, uh, we suddenly, on a whim, said, you two are on in the Marquee tonight. Shall we go? And we went, and you drove. Because <laughs> I've always remembered it. I've always remembered it, because on the way back, uh, we got a burger and chips from the service station. And you told me you were an expert, because you spent so much time on the road, you told me you were an expert at having food on your lap and eating it while still <laughs> driving. And as you turned out the services, you turned too quickly, and all your chips spilt on the floor of the car. So I thought that was hilarious. That you know, you two became very close to us, didn't they? And they stayed at your house where I was living. And you know, I remember coming back from a late night radio show I was doing and finding them on the floor in the sleeping bags, and they had a barbecue there. And of course, you named the house after one of them. In those days, Bono's voice—he really could never reach the high notes, could he?
no, I mean, I just remember, I mean, I, I can't remember his voice that as well as I was just struck by the confidence, you know? I mean, here was someone who looked like he was born to be in front of a rock band. He looked, he just looked like he was loving being there. And I think um, it was interesting at that time because um, obviously um, in sort of fashionable or credible music circles, it was a bit kind of old fashioned to be a Mick Jagger style rock star. You know, people were a bit more subdued and cool than that. You know, if you think about people like Ian Curtis in Joy Division or later Barney in New Order or someone like Ian McCulloch in Echo and the Bunnymen, you know, it, they were never working it like Bono did, you know. And I, I remember thinking, yeah, you know, that's, that's, um, it's interesting to see someone throw themselves wholeheartedly into the role of frontman. You know, and, uh, and 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 so it continued. And obviously, you know, Bono has his his legions of fans and his detractors. But without him fronting that band, it's obviously it would have been impossible for them to succeed. I also remember them just being a charming bunch of people, just really nice. You know, I think that at that point there was some religion in the band, wasn't there? I think it was, was Adam and Christian. I think no, no, no. Adam was the only one who wasn't. The other three were born again Christian. Right. I remember interviewing them a long time ago, you know, and thinking, and I, I was saying to Bono, if someone left, would that, would it still be you too? And he said, I don't think so. You know, I mean, don't forget, of course, it was, it's Larry's band, isn't it? Larry oh, yeah. formed it. In his kitchen, yeah. It's his band. It's his yeah. band. Um, most bands are someone's band. You know, there is a de facto leader who the others will, if it comes to it, defer to. It's his, his or her band. And uh, and you two is Larry's band, but perhaps you know he's kept the more kind of fiery elements of that band uh, sort of at peace I with each other. Not that they didn't seem particularly fiery, you know. I mean, I never witnessed them having arguments. Bono was obviously um, a man, you know, with the necessary ego to be a lead singer, but the others all seemed, you know, they were always very mild mannered, friendly, not at all standoffish, very friendly, very open, um, and uh, you know, so. At that point, I was going to say unaffected, but of course they had nothing to be affected by at that stage. But uh, what they're like now, of course, I haven't seen them for a um, hundred years. Have you not interviewed them for a long time then? No, no, I mean, no, not for a very long time. Um, and um, yeah, it would be interesting to know and to see if what, what they remember of those times, actually. Excellent. Loved listening to that again. Although I have to say, he's got a lot better memory than I have driving to London and back and spilling my chips, fries, whatever. Anyway, let's listen to that interview that uh, I arranged with him with uh, Bono and the Edge in uh, late 1983, or mid-1983, I think. I forgot. One of the things you two prove is that you don't have to have a big hit single. And, you know, it's not as if we've opted for the pop format with New Year's Day. New Year's Day is... is is one in a, in a succession of, I believe, classic singles from 11 o'clock TikTok, I Will Follow, Gloria, you know, Celebration. They've all been the same. Not one of them's been a pop single in inverted commas. In fact, I find pop singles in inverted commas very, very boring. You know, I, uh, pop is probably a better word. So I, I would contest the fact that it's been very important for us. It may be a means to an end, it may be a means to getting us across to a wider audience, and I'm all in favour of that. But does Top of the Pops mean a lot to my life? No, it does not. Yeah, I think in a way that's why 
Newsday was released is that we saw it as a sort of crossover song between some of our earlier work and, and war and that that sort of shows sort of the thinking behind the release of a U2 single it's not because we feel that a song is going to roar up the charts it's because it, it just felt right and New Year's Day would never have been released if it hadn't been the first one off, off the, re the record so um, I think you're right it is a bit more representative but I think when we went in to record this album we decided that we didn't want to um, carry over some of the more distinctive aspects of the U2 sound we wanted to break new ground we wanted to actually broaden the base of what is accepted as, as the U2 sound without mellowing out or without resorting in to fact, the usual techniques I, I'd go so far as to say actually doing the opposite of mellowing out but, but getting more aggressive more biting uh, certainly in the guitar there's less sort of ambient echo and more kind of jagged, clean, uh, aggressive sounds. Yes. I think there's always been sort of in, th we've been in and out of fashion, like like some sort of uh, thing that doesn't fit in. It's like we're a uh, round peg in a square hole and people just cannot decide whether you two should be the hip thing or not. I mean, we were certainly uh, kind of on, on the tip of everyone's tongue around the time we released 11 o'clock TikTok. Everyone was saying how this band will really kind of hit. At this stage, I think they they don't know what they want. You know, some some of them are saying it's 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 rubbish. Some are saying it's the best thing that's happened to music for ten years. There's just total indecision. It's confusion, and I, I'm interested in that it has caused confusion, because if everyone said, "Well, what a nice record they've released, isn't it fab?" I'd be worried. I don't want to be in fashion. Being in fashion implies going out of fashion. I like to provoke a reaction. Now, if you like war, of course it's going to provoke reaction. And as I say, we've had two contrasting opinions have come across. Um, I think in this week's New Musical Express, uh, you know, we have a we have one writer says it's the best record in ten years, with another writer who says it's not. I think they both both agree that you two are in, in our purpose are are strong. I think they were both into the band, actually. But uh, we always find with our records that it takes about a year before people fully come to terms with them. Yeah. And I, I don't say that lightly. I mean, when we released 11 o'clock TikTok, people uh, in, our, in our own country in Ireland said, no way, sorry, you've blown it, lad. With a drum that loud, a snare drum that loud, no way. wasn't played on the radio. People said, you know, what about U23, your first single? You know, you've really... Who's this fellow Martin Hannon, anyway? He's really destroyed you. Rubbish. 11 o'clock TikTok was right for its time. What followed then was I will follow. And what followed was boy. And everyone was, at that stage, accustomed to 11 o'clock TikTok. Oh, you'll never improve on 11 o'clock TikTok. Boy, it's no good. You've really blown it, lads. The same thing happened for October. The same thing happened for war. Now they're saying boy is brilliant. Now they're saying October's brilliant. And next year, when they're all fed up to their teeth with this techno pop, when they're fed up to their teeth with this elitist rubbish that's been forced down our throats by the music press, then they're going to realise that war is punk rock albums and that 1983 has a, a slap in the face. Well, there's an angry little Irishman for you, Mr Bono, from probably 1983, I think, um, talking to Mark Radcliffe. You'll listen to Moments at Rock, and we'll be back with Bono. And Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. 
Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The edge in part two of our U2 uh, quadrology, if it's uh, if there's such a word. But if there's not, it sounds really cool, and I made it up. Uh, just a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be straight back. Yeah, I think we are suffering because we're ahead of our time and okay. because we're too outspoken. I think they're the two things that people are kind of criticising us on. I think that in a year's time, people will turn around and say, well, you know, this album was important. And the fact that we're actually putting ourselves on the line is, is very, I think, very uh, significant in this record. And people, okay, people can sort of pick us up on that and sort of give us a rough time, and that's fair enough. But I think it's still, still to our credit that we haven't kind of sat back and taken the easy route. Look, I tell you, I mean, that is putting our life on the line. Why? Because it's an anti-IRA song. Why? Because it's an anti-UDA song. It's anti-Irish, it's anti-British. It's The only thing that's pro is love. The only thing that's pro is surrender. I'm sick of flags. I'm sick of the whole, the whole rigmarole of nationalism or anti-nationalism or royalism or loyalism. I don't want to talk about it. This is a song of disgust. It says, how long must we sing this song? says, broken bottles under children's feet, bodies strewn across a dead-end street, but I won't heed the battle call. It puts my back up, puts my back up against the wall. And the battle's just begun. There's many lost, but tell me who has won. The trenches dug within our hearts, mothers, children, brothers, sisters torn apart. A guy in the New Musical Express today said that he listened to that and he was unmoved. I tell you, if he listened to that and he was unmoved, he was deaf, dumb as well as blind. Wow, I have to say I'm loving this. 
Doesn't he sound angry there, old Bono? Way back then is part of Moments That Rock, which is a proud member of the Pantheon podcast series. And um, check Pantheon out because there's some really great music-related podcasts on there. It's the largest podcast site of music specifically in the world. And I'm loving it there. And uh, I'm loving all these memories coming flowing back. (laughs) Well, I can't even talk. We'll continue. And pick it up where that angry little Irishman is talking about. Sunday, bloody Sunday. An interview Mark Radcliffe did with them in 1983, just prior to their war tour. Let's get back to it. It's the loudest ending on a song since My Generation by The Who. This is it. I mean, this is... This is a slap in the face, this song. It's a song about waking up. Waking up youth culture. In the 60s, youth culture was strong in itself. A force that could change, for instance, people's attitude to Vietnam. You know, uh, somebody in one of the papers today said, uh, don't you know you can't change the world? Hey, Bono. Hey, The Edge. Don't you know you can't change the world? And, you know, I was... I was disgusted because that's kind of just lying down in it. That's apathy. In the 60s, if people took to the streets, they changed things. And I'm not necessarily saying that people take to the streets. But this is a song about the divisions in youth culture. You know, I'm a punk, I'm a skinhead, I'm this, I'm that. Youth are useless nowadays because they've been divided. And this, at the same time, it isn't Jimmy Percy saying, if the kids are united. But it's just saying, you know, it's a song saying, look, Let's break through this. You know, this, I see this as a very exciting age to be a part of. We're entering in a whole new age of technology, a whole new age of leisure, because people are going to be on the streets now. Unemployment can't decrease. It really can't. You know, we can say it's going to be great, everything's going to be fine, but it's not. And people are going to have to deal with their leisure time. Clerical classes are all out. Computers are all in. If it's happening in music, you know, machines are taking over. It's certainly happening in in all other levels of society. This is a song, it's an angry song, like a song. But the answer is not to take to the streets with sticks and stones. You know, it starts at home. Revolution starts at home, in yourself. You know, I was a revolution in my life. What we're also kind of reacting against is something which I think is far more insidious and far more dangerous than, than a lot of the issues that is the sort of apathy, the disease of yeah. apathy that is That's sweeping it. through not just kind of the sort of the, the people yeah. who should be grown up and grown out of that type of thing, but through the people who should be getting involved and, and sort of making their voices heard. People are just not really that interested in that sort of thing anymore. Yeah. That's when what they this about. This record is war against apathy, war against cynicism, you know, as much as anything else. Cynicism is, is more dangerous often. You know, it, it, when I said Sunday Bloody Sunday, the trenches dug within our hearts, that's where the real damage is done. Not in buildings that are pulled down, not in the dole queues, but if people actually give in to apathy or give in to cynicism. War is about getting up. It's a refusal to lie down and get up, fight back. Mm. I think, in you a know, way, that's what we've done, in that we've kind of not held back. We haven't sort of shied away from sometimes making fools of ourselves on stage and we haven't sort of worn the, the long overcoat to hide everything, you know. We've we put ourselves on the line. I mean to to say that again, I think it's important that I think if people are prepared to do that then that that's good. If people are too scared 
to to, uh, to to sort of have the spotlight on themselves, then then they are the people that lose. I think they were beginning to tire of of some of the more sort of throwaway aspects of pop music, and the the youth that there's something that they hadn't really um, delved into prior to this time. U2 was now becoming particularly palatable, particularly what they wanted to hear. I don't think we've changed our stance. We've never, we've never tried to release singles for the express purpose of having hits. We've always released singles that we felt were the right thing to release. And the fact that this has become a hit just proves that you know people are beginning to get interested in what we're doing. Well, right. Two Hearts Beat is one isn't a hit, yeah. It is a love song, love song that's fighting to explain itself. And love always stands out against a struggle. There's a thing in the Bible that says, was it love others um, as you love yourself? You've got to love yourself. A lot of people think, you know, yeah, man, I'll, lo I'll love you. I've, you've got to actually develop a kind of a, a, a respect for yourself. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that I'm completed on this. I'm not sure. Sometimes I hate myself. Sometimes I get very sick of Bono. But, um, you know, this two heart speed is one. It's about trying to explain this emo an emotion called love. I wanted to be in the top ten. Of course I do. I wanted to be in the top ten because if it's why? in the top ten, it means that somebody else, like uh, some commercial enterprise, isn't in the top ten. I think, like you mentioned, bands like Yazoo and Blumange, essentially they they are catering for discos, and that sort of the music they create is very clean, very powerful, very easy. It's a sort of it's it's a consumer item. You just hear it, and that's that. What people go to concerts for, and what I went to concerts for, was was to see uh, um, something on stage, to see a personality, to get close to something, you know, and and that I think is what what we are is is for people on stage there's something more than just an album being played over a big PA system yeah who there's wants some that soul, there's some heart <coughs> and soul it's good you know I mean what is the point I mean it's not that we have a guitar bass and drums that's nothing to do with it you know I think Alf the singer is, is who's got a great voice in fact I think she's going to find a proper band so that she can do her voice justice instead of having those warbling those little twiddling noises in the background find them irritating. A voice like that deserves space, it deserves the respect of human beings behind it. And, you know, I don't, uh, I'm not against machines. We're going we're gonna to work uh, in a metronomic way for a thing we have coming up which needs a metronomic thing, which is a ballet. We're, you know, uh, and so we're going to get into that. I'm not against machines. I'm not somebody stuck in it or set in, in, in our ways. You know, it's nothing to do with that. It's a question of guts and feeling. That's why people come to see us live, because we're not hiding behind a haircut. We're not putting on a mask. It's just four people. With all the excitement and everything over the last couple of months, we've just discovered that our audience has, has grown to the extent where we really, there is a demand for us to go back. In fact, we, we're going to be playing something like four London shows when we only did one or maybe two the last time. As we speak, we're, we're trying to put together the songs. If we can remember how to play them, we certainly will be. I mean, we want we want this to be a radically new set for you too. But you know, it's it's very difficult actually pulling it out of the hat. A radically new set. Mm. You know, for me, performance is, is, is like a very complete thing. You know, it starts, it has a mid beginning, middle, and an end. It rises and falls.
places it rises and falls are very important. If it falls in the wrong places, you fall as well with it. You know, we're not just relying on the power of the group for this new set. I really would like them to be a lot of light and shade. That's very difficult. It's very difficult because we're not classically trained musicians. We weren't musicians at all. We were just four people who started a band called U2. We learned how to play. And, you know, a lot of the music, got, you know, is, is very detailed. I mean, it's, it's very technical. And being able to play it is quite difficult, you know? And so it'll be as interesting for me as the audience to see how this set works. Well, anyway, I went to Foster Circus when I was a kid. And uh, it was incredible because the guy who was the strong man, as soon as he finished being a strong man, uh, he used to plug himself into a light bulb and things like that. He, he would end up, you know, it seemed ten minutes later, handing out all the leaflets for what they were doing next. And the guy who was selling ice cream turned out to be Merlin the magician and things like that. And the guy who's the monkey turned out to be the owner or whatever. But, you know, it's a bit like that in our operation. I mean, it is. It does revolve around the four people. In fact, it does, musically, in a lot of ways, Edge has to stretch himself. It should be known. It's as if I want to live, I've got to die to myself someday. You know, a lot of struggle, which is what the album's about, a lot of friction, is, is down to pride, ego. You know, instead of people stepping on other people's toes. That's what it is, you know, the business of getting on, promotion, you know, me first, you know, you second. Surrender, the concept of surrender, is that real love asks nothing for itself, real love steps back. And uh, that is how you dissolve uh, aggressive situations. You don't dissolve them by saying, I'm right, I'm right. You know, you dissolve them by apology. Somebody said to me once, you know, it was two people were talking to me about their relationship. They were a boy and a girl. And they, they were talking, well, they were a woman and a man, actually. And they were saying that whenever there was aggression, between the pair of them, they felt it wasn't a question of who's right, you know, goes up and who's wrong has to say sorry. If there's any aggression between them, they both deserve, you know, to back down and to diffuse a situation. You know, l real love, which is the only thing that will sort out the problems in Northern Ireland, the only problem that will sort out the problems in a city, you know, is what this album's about ultimately. You know, happiness is easy. You know, I think happiness is... Don't fudge the issue, Bono. Are you happy? You know, well, if I t right now, you know, I feel very ill. You know, I feel like I'm going to go back and go to bed. You know, but I have a peace inside of myself. And that's something that's that's more important than, ha than happiness. You know, that's what I feel. As I wake up in the morning, I have a great peace in my life. Happiness just depends on circumstances. You know, it's a nice day, so I feel happy. It's, uh, you know, people are buying our records in thousands. I feel happy. You know, but that's not real happiness. You know, if you've got real peace, it means that you should be able to weather any storm. It means when nobody's buying your records, when when the weather isn't fine, you know, when the, when the rain is beating on your window, if you've still got that peace, well, then you've got something that's special. Were you ever in that position? What position? When people weren't buying your records and the rain was beating on the window and it wasn't a nice day. Um, there's no real answer to that, is there, Adrian? Well, I think there is a real answer to that now, Bono. People do buy your records, so who cares about the rain on your window? 
Um, depending on when you're listening to this, Bono, <laughs> the boy album, I would, uh, is actually 61 on May the 10th. It's funny, you always think of these people as kids. You've been listening to Moments That Rock, part two, in a four-part, maybe five-part series of podcasts all about you two. Spread out over, I was thinking months, but I might put them out one after the other. I'll uh, go away and think about it. But meanwhile, today's guest was Mark Radcliffe and some fascinating stories about meeting you two for the first time and then an interview I arranged with him in 1983, prior to the U2 war tour with Bono and the Edge. And then, after that, a Mr Malcolm Gerry, who was involved in putting together the entire Red Rocks under a blood red sky. Absolutely incredible event at Red Rocks, Colorado. Then, to finish it off, we will hear... A 1984 interview that I myself did with the band um, during their Unforgettable Fire tour and just prior to what happened at uh, Live Aid, which was spectacular. In between that, there'll be plenty of other good stuff. So please subscribe, listen to the podcast, enjoy it like I am. See you next week. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.